Hello, welcome to the podcast at Jesper Baptist Church, continuing in our series through the book of Jeremiah entitled Facing Opposition. The title of the message this morning is Facing Exile. Please enjoy. All right, so take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, we're beginning at, we're not beginning, we're in the middle of a series through the book of Jeremiah. We'll spend a few weeks in Jeremiah. The title of this series is Facing Opposition. The first week, we're facing opposition. Last week, we were facing hypocrisy. And this week, we're going to be facing exile. So if you have your place in Jeremiah 29, one last time, I'm going to ask you to stand in respect and reverence to the Word of God. We're going to read our scripture, pray, and then sit back down for the message. Jeremiah chapter 29, let's begin reading in verse number 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. Facing exile, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for all you've done for us. Dear Lord, I pray as we study the word of God this morning, we study the pages of Scripture Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would speak through this living, breathing book. And Lord, you'd give us truths that we can apply to our lives to face the exile that's before us. Thank you for what you've done for us. Meet with us this morning. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray. Amen. You know, I remembered when I was I remember when I was a child, I hated when something major was going on in the world. Because when something major was going on in the world, what that meant was my dad was gonna watch the news. And that's all he was gonna watch, and he was just gonna be glued to it. And I remember when Desert Storm happened, and I'm just a little kid. And Desert Storm's going on, and I'm watching the TV screen, and I'm seeing the missiles streak across the TV screen, streak across the sky, and, and I remember that. But one of the things I remember is, is going to bed and looking back at my dad in the living room and him still watching the, the war that's going on. And this last Wednesday night after our Wednesday evening service, I go home and turn on the news, and sure enough, Ukraine, uh, uh, Russia is, being, is invading Ukraine. Once again, missiles and bombs are going off, and this time I was the one watching the TV screen, and my kids were watching me watch it this time. You know, my how the tables have turned. But, you know, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. These are uncertain times that we live in, very uncertain times. And I'm not going to stand up here behind this pulpit and make false, empty promises to you. But what I can stand up here is I can say the God of heaven is in charge. The God of the Bible is in control. He always was and he always will be. 
I want to remind you that, you know, there have been uh, Jews in Ukraine for thousands of years. In that area, Turkey, and in that area of the world, there have been Jews in that area since the first captivity. But in World War II, there were 7 million civilian casualties in Ukraine. One million of those were Jewish casualties. In fact, President Zelensky is a Ukrainian Jew. We support a missionary to Jews, and uh, he has a big ministry in Ukraine. His name is Brother Henry Allen Bennett, and uh, he works in Ukraine. Uh, we support him as a missionary. He goes on mission trips to Jews in Cuba, to Jews in Palestine, to Jews in Ukraine. He works with a local pastor over in Ukraine named Eugene Kozinchenko. I met Eugene Kozinchenko when I was about 12 or 13 years old. He was over here getting support for his church, but he's a Ukrainian national pastor. He's from Ukraine. And uh, he went back over there after getting support and started his church. And Brother Henry's wife, uh, Victoria, is from Brother Eugene's church. Brother Henry was planning a mission trip to Ukraine. And he knew that there was uncertainty that Russia might invade. But the Lord led him to go on over to Ukraine while he was in the air on an airplane is when Russia invaded. They had to turn and go to Turkey. He stayed in Turkey for a few days. I think now he is back in uh, the United States. But there are so many churches and there's so many Christians in Ukraine right now that are that's very uncertain. There are American missionaries in Ukraine that decided to stay. They're building churches and ministering to families, and they decided to stay. And they're, you know, it's, it's very uncertain. You go to social media and you look on there, and everybody says, oh, this is the end of the world and stuff like that. Don't believe anything like that. Let me tell you something. There will there, all, always be somebody predicting the end of the world. That's happened for the entire history of the world. Back in 2012, it was a Mayan calendar that was going to do us in. Harold Camping is a famous doomsday preacher. He's, he's predicted the end of the world 12 times. So don't listen to any nonsense like that. Nobody knows the day of the hour with the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come in a thief in the night. That means we won't know it, we won't see it, we won't expect it. We do need to pray for the Ukrainian people. We need to pray for those families who have been upended, who have been ripped away from their homes, who are fleeing, uh, fleeing for their lives, who don't know where their family members are. And we need to pray for the church in Ukraine. There's a good church in Ukraine, a good system of, of Bible-preaching churches in Ukraine that we definitely need to remember and that we need to pray for. But you know, the Jews are no strangers to hard times. We're reading here in chapter 29 in Jeremiah that they're in exile and Jeremiah is writing them a letter. But if you back up to chapter 27, what you'll see is that it's the year that Jeremiah is in is 593 B.C. 
Judah's already been invaded once by Babylon and the first group have, have been taken hostage and taken captivity. And let me tell you something, when Babylon decides to invade, they come in and they start mowing, mowing things down like a lawnmower over dry grass. Babylon just comes in there and mows everybody down and comes into the city and takes the leaders and takes the officials and takes all the nobles of Judah and grabs them hostage and marches them 500 miles across the dry desert into Babylon. So this is after the first invasion, but before the second invasion, we're back in Judah and the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, what I want you to do is I want you to wear a wooden yoke on your neck as a symbol of the impending doom and the impending captivity uh, that, uh, and the bondage that the Jews are about to be under. Jeremiah, what I want you to do, God is saying, is I want you to write a letter to all the small little nations surrounding Judah. Now I want you to tell them in that neighbor, in that letter, that, that Nebuchadnezzar is my servant and that I have given the world to Nebuchadnezzar, that he is a servant of God. And you got to think, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, man, the, the, that comes in and destroys the people of God, who promotes false idols, who defies the living God, and he's the servant of God. Absolutely, because God, the God of heaven, is not afraid to use a wicked person as an instrument to, uh, to give his judgment, to promote his wrath. So yes, this wicked king who destroys the people of God and destroys the temple and carries away the articles of the temple into a foreign land to desecrate them, yes, he is the servant of God. He's employed by God to carry out the judgment of his wrath. Jeremiah sent those letters to the surrounding little nations around Judah. He sent it to Edom and he sent it to Moab and he sent it to Tyre and he sent it to, Tide, uh, to, uh, to Tyre and Sidon. And in the letter he said, you can either submit to Nebuchadnezzar or you can die. A couple verses later, he goes into the palace and he stands before the current king of Judah, King Zedekiah. He's standing in the palace. He's standing before the king. He's wearing the wooden yoke on his neck and he looks up at the king. You see, the king is planning on joining with these little nations. The king of Judah is planning on joining with Edom and Moab and Tyre and Sidon and, and making just like a little coalition of forces to stand against Babylon. Jeremiah goes in there and says to the king, king, you can surrender or you can die. And this puts the king in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a position here. Man, a king surrender, he would be branded a coward. He would go down in history as a yellow belly, as a coward. Now, what kind of position are you putting this king in? He would be branded. But Jeremiah said it's the only way to survive. It's the only way to survive. Because if you fight, you will die. Jeremiah stands before the king with a wooden yoke on his neck, preaching surrender or die. It's just a striking symbol 
of the impending doom of Judah. Chapter 28, Jeremiah goes into the temple. He's wearing that same yoke around his neck and he stands in the temple in Jerusalem and he preaches the same message and he preaches surrender or die. Do not, you cannot fight. You cannot run away. You must surrender or die. And from the back of the room, Jeremiah hears a voice that says, shut up, Jeremiah. Jeremiah whips around and looks and sees who's telling him to be quiet, who's speaking over him, and it's another prophet by the name of Hananiah. Hananiah stands there and Hananiah brings a new message supposedly from the Lord. Let's read in Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse number 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. This is Hananiah speaking. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried into Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, And all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the kingdom of Babylon. Hananiah stands there and he looks at Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, you've got it wrong. We've only got two years left. Two years of this mess and then it's over. Two years of this mess and then everything goes back to the way it was. Everything goes back. All the articles come back to the temple. And the temple gets fixed. It gets rebuilt. The articles come back. All of our politicians and all of our nobles and all of our princes that have been marched off to Babylon, they're all coming back. And in two years, everything's going to be restored. In two years, we're going to turn on the TV and Andy Griffith's going to be back on the TV. In two years, all our favorite restaurants are going to be back and we're going to have the Sunday morning dinners that we used to have so many years ago. And in two years, everything's going to be restored. All the vessels will be back. All the gold will be restored. God isn't going to break our yoke, Jeremiah. Hananiah stands there and said, God is going to break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. And this phony, fake, false, shyster of a prophet stands there and tickles people's ears with a message they wanted to hear and gives people false hope. Now, this is a problem during Jeremiah's day with most of the prophets. In fact, the Bible says in Jeremiah 6.14, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Man, they're, they're standing up. He, that verse is repeated in Jeremiah chapter 8. And these false, phony, fake, shyster prophets, they stand up and they preach, oh, all the, everything's peace, everything's okay, everything's peace. And man, it makes everybody feel good. It's a feel-good message. It's a message that everybody wants to hear. And man, they love to hear these preachers get up and preach this, this false hope, this fake message, this something that everybody wants to hear. And they preach peace, peace. And God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, there is no peace. There is no peace, Jeremiah. I want to tell you, Christian, we live in a day and time where preachers do that today. 2 Timothy 4, 3. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's what we have today. Today we have teachers and preachers and pastors and professors and evangelists and they stand up and they preach fables and they preach myths and they preach false hope. They peddle false hope to the Christians of today, the people of today. They preach a false gospel with no repentance, with no life change, accepting sin as normal, not willing to rock the boat. Bless God, I want to tell you today, it is okay to love the sinner, but you cannot, you cannot, you cannot love the sin. Jeremiah looks at the false and phony prophet. And you know what Jeremiah says to him? Not what you think. Jeremiah looks at Hananiah and says, oh man, I wish that was true. Hananiah, if if anybody is going to be a fan of what you're saying, Hananiah, Jeremiah says, I'm your number one fan. That's what he says to him. Jeremiah looks at this phony fake prophet and says, Jeremiah, I'm your number one fan. If anybody wants things to go back to the way it was, it's me. If anybody wants the borders of Judah restored, if anybody wants Jerusalem rebuilt, if anybody wants, uh, wants the vessels to come back, to the temple. It's me. If anybody wants Andy Griffith back on TV, if anybody wants the buffet open back up down the street and things to go back to the way they used to be, if anybody wants that, it's me. I want that more than anything else. But Hananiah, it's not going to happen. Judah will never return to its former glory. Look what Jeremiah says to him in verse 8. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands, against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Jeremiah said, listen, Hananiah, Many prophets have come before me and many prophets have come before you. These prophets have preached famine. They've preached pestilence. They've preached sword. They've preached peace. They've preached just chaos. But the true test is who's, who, which prophecy comes true. That's the real test to see if a prophet, if a prophet says something and it does not come to pass, he is not a true prophet. And nor there. Jeremiah is saying, Hananiah, the proof is in the pudding. And you know what he was saying in essence? He was saying in essence, and he was implying to Hananiah, everything I have said to this point has come to pass. What have you done? That's what he is saying. And man, this enraged Hananiah so much that Hananiah went over to Jeremiah, who for months and months and months had been wearing this wooden yoke on his neck. He came to, he came to Jeremiah in the temple, yanked the yoke off, broke it, smashed it into pieces on the temple floor, and said, that is what God's going to do to Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah looked at the smashed and broken yoke that he'd been wearing for months. He looked back at Hananiah 
and began to walk out the temple. As he's walking out of the temple, the word of the Lord came to him. And he turned back to Hananiah. And he said, now God's not going to put a wooden yoke on you. Now God's going to put an iron yoke on you. And Hananiah, you're going to die. Verse 15. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you're going to die. Because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in that same year, in the seventh month. Well, man, I mean, everybody was in the temple. Everybody heard that Jeremiah was going to predict this guy's death. And then the guy died. Well, this means that everybody's going to start listening to Jeremiah now, right? Everybody's going to say that he's a good prophet and what he says come true and people are going to start listening to him now, right? No. No, no, no. Just a few more years, Babylon would come and one last time take people captive, destroy the temple completely, totally desecrate and totally destroy and level and raise Jerusalem. So what are these people supposed to do now? Exile has come. Now they're in Babylon. What, what are they supposed to do? Now, now they're, they're going to be taken to a land that they don't know. Now they're going to be forced to speak a different language. Now they're going to be forced to eat different foods. These people are going to be made to settle in a land between Assyria and Babylon that has been desolated by war and commanded to refurbish it and commanded to redevelop a wasteland. Their temple, all the stuff that they had so much pride in destroyed, their vessels desecrated, idols all around them, strangers in a strange land. All the while, you've got false prophets like Hananiah standing up and saying, don't unpack your bags yet. Don't unpack your Samsonite. Two more years and we'll get through this. Two more years and everything will be back the way it was. But everything that, happened, that Jeremiah said would happen, happened. And guess what? Now people start to listen to Jeremiah. Now that their city is destroyed and now that everybody's in captivity, now they're waiting to hear from Jeremiah. Now they'll say, hey, Jeremiah, I'm sorry we didn't listen to you before, but we'll listen to you now, Jeremiah. Tell us what to do, Jeremiah. Uh, we are listening. Tell us, Jeremiah, how are we going to fight this? How are we going to rebel against this? How are we going to revolt against this? Jeremiah, we didn't listen to you before. We're sorry, but now we're going to listen. Tell us how to fight. Tell us how to rebel. Tell us how to revolt. We're listening, Jeremiah. And then one day they open up the mailbox, and in the mailbox is a letter from Jeremiah, and they can't wait, and they gather together, and they open up that letter, and they begin reading that letter. And in the first paragraph of the letter, Jeremiah says, Build houses, plant gardens, marry, 
have children and pray. And they say, Jeremiah, that's a terrible rebellion plan. That's a, that, that's a terrible fight strategy. Jeremiah, you're not going to make a good general, Jeremiah. That, that's not a good plan for a rebellion. That's not a good plan for a fight. That's not a good plan for a revolt. But that's what Jeremiah said. Let's read our passage one last time. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. Man, that's a terrible rebellion strategy, Jeremiah. But you know, of all the commands that's in that, in that little paragraph there, one of the most surprising commands is to pray for them. He says to pray for them, seek their welfare, seek the welfare of the people that put us in exile, pray to the Lord on their behalf. But he gives a reason and it's a logical reason. He says, if they have welfare, then you yourself will have welfare. But did you know that in doing this and Jeremiah giving this command, what he's actually Commanding them to do is commanding them not to revolt. He's commanding them not to rebel. He's commanding them not to go against their oppressors. Now, I have to stop because of current events, and I have to address that what I'm saying about in this situation just applies to the Jews in this situation. I am not talking about Ukraine and Russia. There are many times in Israel's history where they're given a command by God to revolt and rebel against their oppressors. I'm just saying in this instance, he told the Jews not to. That's all I'm saying. Well, how do you know? It's not like he spelled it out, don't rebel, don't revolt. He just said, build houses, plant gardens, marry, pray, do all these things, have kids. How was that a command not to rebel and revolt? Well, you see, in Deuteronomy 20... All these things are exemptions to holy war. So if you're doing all these things, you can't go to war. So this was a command not to rebel, not to fight against it. God is saying, the exile's your home now. I know you want to go back to the way things were. I know you want to go back to the past. I know you miss it. I know you desperately want it. But exile's your home now. Exile's your home. I'll still take care of you, but I'm not going to take care of you back there. I'm going to take care of you right here because exile is now your home. It's where I'm going to take care of you. And you know, if God is telling Israel to settle down here, then that means that this was God's plan all along, wasn't it? When the Bible says in Genesis 12, 3, that all nations of the world will be blessed by Israel, this is how it's supposed to happen. 
The Bible says in Isaiah 42, 6 that Israel will be a light to the nations. This is how it's going to happen. How in the world do you think the wise men of Babylon knew to come to the birth of Christ? It was because of the captivity in Babylon. Israel being a light to the nations. Now listen, it won't be easy, but it's what God commands. And I think in this story, there's wisdom that me and you can take from our, for our own life. Christian, you may live in exile. You may live in exile. There are times in our lives when we feel in exile, when we feel like our life is nothing of how we plan it to be. We plan to be somebody else. I'm nothing. This is not how I saw my life going. You're living in exile. This is not how things are supposed to go down. This is not the way you wanted things to turn out. Maybe things happen in your life that you absolutely have no control over. Maybe one day with no warning and, and with no chance to respond, you get a pink slip from your boss, you lose your job, and your entire life is turned upside down. You feel in exile. Maybe one day you wake up and turn around and your marriage has gone up in flames. Maybe one day you're waiting on test results from a doctor and you're waiting on the doctor to call with those test results and you get that phone call and instead of test results, he says, come in, we need to talk. And in an instant, you can feel like you're living in exile. Maybe you feel like David in Psalms 13 when he said, how long, O Lord, will you forever forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Listen, if anybody knew exile, it was David. David was exiled by Saul. David was exiled by his son Absalom. There was this one time when he was in exile and, and, and they, the, David and his men are away from the camp and the Amalekites come in. And the Amalekites come in and they kidnap all the wives and they kidnap all the children and they burn everything down. David and his men come back and they're so distraught because their camp is burned down. Their sons and daughters are missing their whole families are gone and they're so mad at David because David put them in the situation that David, they're planning on stoning David. So not only does he have to deal with his men trying to stone him, all his possessions are burnt. His family's gone too. And what does the Bible say that David did? 1 Samuel 30 verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one but, but of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The Bible says that he strengthened it. It doesn't say that he snapped his fingers and everything went back to the way it was. It says that the Lord strengthened him in the situation that he was in. Let me tell you something about your life in exile. You can't change it. There's nothing you can do. It is what it is. You can't go back in time. You can't go 88 
miles an hour in the DeLorean and change it. It is what it is. You can't, you can't do it. Let me tell you something. Sometimes life will beat you up one side and down the other. Opposition will come at you and come at you over and over and over. And that won't stop. And you'll look up and you'll get up and you'll get hit down, hit down again. And it doesn't, it doesn't let up for one minute. And you feel like you're at the end of the rope. What do you do when it comes like that? When life is beating you up and slapping you and you can't change it. And man, it just feels like you're at the end of the rope and you've got no options. Then you go and you open up the mailbox and there's a letter from your good pal Jeremiah. And he says, build, plant, marry, and pray. Those are your options. That's it, Jeremiah? That's all you got for me? I want you to keep in mind that these aren't just our arbitrary commands. All these things are gifts from God. All these things are gifts from God. Everything good you have comes from God. It is a promise that even in exile, God will take care of you. Even in exile, even in the eye of the storm, at the deepest part of the valley, there is still a plan. There is still a will for you. There is still a purpose. There is still a reason. God has you there for a reason. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me when I search and search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to this place from where I sent you into exile. You know, God is with you even in exile. God's heart is to restore you. Now listen, he might not restore you to where you were. There may be places you can't go back to. But he will restore you. Now, you might have to clear up some debris. You might have to replow a field or two. But in exile, you are not alone, even though it may feel that way. Verse 6 says, multiply there and do not decrease. Don't decrease in exile. Listen to me. Life does not grind to a halt because you're in troubled times. It does not grind to a halt. Build, plant, marry, and pray, pray, pray. You ever feel anxious? You ever feel worrisome? You ever feel like you're, 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 you're fretting and your anxiety level is a 10? Do you know what the Bible's answer to that is? It's prayer. Prayer is what brings you peace. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Your number one spiritual tool in exile is prayer. 
Don't tell me you've tried everything if you don't pray every day. If you don't spend time with God every single day, do not tell me that you've tried everything. Man, of all those things, the spiritual discipline that he promotes the most is prayer. Jeremiah said at the end of the day, what's going to get you through your worry, what's going to get you through your fretting, what's going to get you through your anxiety, what's going to get you through your chaos, what's going to give you peace more than anything else is spending time with God in prayer. It's what's going to get you through. It's what's going to keep you going like the Energizer Bunny, going and going and going. It's prayer. Man, how to God I would wish Christians would pray more. And then we've talked about the individual. Now let's talk about the church. The church is in exile. Jesus said in John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. The church of God is in exile today. Our churches are exiled from our culture. We are exiled from our society. We are exiled from our government. We live in a land of idols. We are strangers in a strange land. 2017, a study was done that said that every single religion represented in America has developed a better reputation over the last few years, with the exception being evangelical Christians. We live in a time of self-righteousness. We live in a time of individualism. We live in a time of a feel-good religion. We live in a time when it's not popular to say that you're Christian anymore. And nowadays, people only do things and identify as things just because it's the popular thing to do. And it's not popular to be a Christian anymore. But look, Christians aren't blameless either. We're not blameless. We've got issues too. There's a reason why it ain't just the world being against us while our reputation's down. It's our fault too. You know what Christians like to do? The holy huddle. You know what a holy huddle is? A holy huddle is where we just kind of gather amongst ourselves. We don't help anybody else. And we get in our little groove and... Man, we just do our own thing. We don't help others. We just help ourselves. But you know what we need to do as Christians? And this is part of the reason why we need church. is because we need to create in our community, create in our nation. We have to create a counterculture. A culture that counters this world. And in our churches, we need to build, we need to plant, we need to marry, and we need to pray. We need to come together as the people of God and build a Christian community. And that is what the church is. The church is a counterculture against the world. That's why you need church, mom and dad. That's why you need church, single person. That's why you need church, 
husband and wife because you need to be a part of a community that loves not the world nor the things of the world. They were called Christians first in Antioch. They didn't call themselves Christians. The world called them that because they were Christ-like. Because they came together, they assembled together as a body of believers and they followed the teachings of Christ. That's what a church is. Man, you need to, if you need to join a local assembly of believers. Why? Because it's time we made a home in exile. It's time we made a home. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not on this world. If you're a saved, born-again believer of God and you have put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone to get you to heaven, not in your works, not in the fact that you were a good person, and it's not because you prayed a prayer. It's because you turned away from your old life. You repented from that. You turned in faith to Jesus Christ. At one time in your life, you put your faith and your trust and your hope in heaven. You put it in Jesus and Jesus alone. You didn't put your faith in the church. You didn't put your faith in any good work where a scale outweighs the good and bad works, you will never do more good works than bad works. We are all born sinners. We're born, uh, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. For the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, my Lord. And if I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I become a redeemed, saved person, saved for all eternity, sealed until the day of redemption. Once I get my salvation, I can't lose my salvation. But then what? But then what? It doesn't automatically just make you a practicing member of a church. We have to be, and I'm not trying to browbeat anybody into winning this church. you got to be a part of a local assembly. We need to live as a light to the Gentiles. Make our home in exile because we are citizens of heaven. Now the word welfare there is an interesting word. That word welfare in there is a word in Hebrew that you've heard before. And it's the word shalom. And it means peace. Now, here's the thing about the word shalom in Hebrew. It has a community aspect to it. Like when you say shalom, you're not just saying shalom to an individual. You're saying shalom to a community. And that's what we need to be, a community inside of the world. The Jews are told to pray for the Babylonian community because if Babylon is blessed, they are blessed and we should pray for the world in which we live because if it is blessed, we are blessed. But we have to assemble together to do it. We live in exile. We may live in exile as individuals. We may live in exile as a church. But what are we to do? Number one, we're to build. Build our homes. Build a church. Number two, we're to plant. Plant our crops. Go to work. Sow the seeds of the Word of God. Spread the gospel. 
but plant yourselves and put down roots. We're to marry, focus on the family. If there is no family, there is no church. The building blocks of the church are your family. And then pray. Rejoice always in the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Pray, pray, pray. If you didn't do anything from this message but increase your prayer life, you'll be a better Christian for it.